We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. It's that time of year you play your rival, catch up in Mustard Week. FSU. We hate them. They hate us. I'm Alan Williams with the man, the myth, the legend, James DiVirgilio. James, how are you doing over there? I'm doing very well. Alan today is across the state for Thanksgiving with his family. I am in Gainesville still. I have not left for Thanksgiving. So we are doing a, a old school, a throwback. You're not in Russia this time, Alan. For those of you that have not been listening previous to this year, we did a whole season where Allen was in Russia. so The Russia season, as it's known. Yeah, this distance is nothing compared to that. I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to a night game in the Swamp here on Saturday. Heck yeah. Finally, against Florida State, uh, I'm looking forward to talking about the issues on this podcast, Alan. But before that, as always, if you like the content on the show, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. Most importantly, maybe, become a patron on Patreon. We love all of our supporters, whether you're a Facebook supporter, you're an email supporter, you don't ever write us at all. We know you're listening. Therefore, you support us, and we love our patrons. Alan, thanks some of our new patrons. Yeah, coming with a large dono, Daniel Gray. What's up, Daniel? A medium dono, Pete Wells. And a small dono, someone who wanted to be known as Will Miles Read and Reaction. And... Boom! Hundo bomb! Courtesy of one Stash Mihalchek. What is up? Thanks for that. Appreciative of that. Super. Hey, James, another Hundo bomb this week. Big deal. Yeah, real big deal. In fact, we have been asked to add a sound effect, and I put that one together. I think we might just have a different Hundo bomb sound effect every time it happens, just to keep you guessing. But seriously, Love it. That's awesome. It's fantastic. We want to celebrate that just like we celebrate all of our supporters. And of course, still sitting on the throne, the great, the illustrious Alexander Leventhal. Really, I mean, the guy is unconquered as 
some people like to say out west, but that is obviously not true. Alexander is unconquered, though, so shout-outs to him. It's so much fun giving him props every week. And we do have another shout-out to give. In fact, from, from time to time now, Alan, the podcast has gotten big enough. We have enough listeners in enough areas that people will know us before we know them, which Alan and I think is just tremendous and awesome. We love it when people come up to us and say, listen to the pod, or it's a family thing, or it's just for themselves, or husband and wife, or whatever it may be. We thoroughly enjoy hearing those stories, as we've said before. And this week, I had such a story. I won't tell the story on air this time, but I will give a shout out to one Cassie Cook, who is a new listener this season, loves the pod. Cassie, we love you. Thanks for listening. All right, Alan, let's jump into the opening thoughts on this podcast. We're going to spend the first half dealing with a few questions before we dive into Florida State, courtesy of our stat guy, Josh Duty. He wanted to let me, know. Let me ask you this. Let me yeah, ask you this. I wanted to ask you first, but you know what? You can ask me. Go for it. You do it. You do it. Yeah. So, James, you are famous for a few things, one of them being your love for Will Greer. But you know, maybe there's a new man in your life here with Kyle Trask. Give me some thoughts on Trask versus Greer. This is hard. When Josh asked me the question live and in person and we punted it to the pod, I really didn't have an answer. As you said, it's the intersection of so many things that I enjoy. And I wanted to look at numbers and I wanted to think through it and what are my feelings on it. Here are my thoughts. I like them both equally. But here's the main difference between them two. If you extrapolate their numbers, Alan, they're very similar. In fact, Trask's numbers are better than Will Greer's. Ever so slightly, they are better. Will Greer did not have the chance to keep playing at Florida to equal the number of games Trask has played, so it's hard to know exactly who would have won that battle. But they are similar and yet different quarterbacks. Trask definitely gets the nod when it comes to pre-snap and post-snap reads. However, Will Greer was just a freshman, Alan, when he was taking the field, whereas Trask had a lot more time uh, to be able to develop that. You know, Will Greer, redshirt freshman, Trask obviously much different situation. And then Will Greer, I think, made throws that were just phenomenal. He put certain balls on people that were that were maybe electric even, that were that were maybe something I haven't seen Trask do. And Trask has had his own amazing throws, as we've talked about. But coming out of Greer's hands, they were a little different. And then Greer was a better runner than Trask was. But all in all, if you're talking about peak enjoyment, which is why I think Josh asked this question for me, I have so thoroughly enjoyed what Trask has done this year. I was so sky high on Will Greer, thinking we were going to win a national title. I think when I looked at those feelings, Alan, the primary difference wasn't actually about Will Greer or Kyle Trask, but about the teams we had. We knew we had such a massive deficiency this season at offensive line, and it became very clear that it was such a huge deficiency that we had said on this very podcast very early on, this team is incapable of winning anything. And then in comes Trask, and we said, okay, well, this is our higher ceiling chance. We could steal something, which we wound up not being able to do, but tremendously enjoyable to watch him do it. That year with Will Greer, there were Greer, there was all these feelings that maybe we could have been something actually really special. There was no capped ceiling. We didn't have what seemed to be a massive, obvious weakness. And that team did have weaknesses for sure, but it wasn't maybe like this team was, Alan. So I think the two feelings between them are probably exactly the same. I don't think I can pick just one. And I think that's what speaks so highly about Kyle Trask is anyone who listened to this podcast early on knew how much I loved Will Greer. And the fact that Trask is equal to him, better than him in numbers, I think a better reader of the field than Will Greer 
is as high of praise as I could give since we've been doing this podcast. But I, I truly can. I can't pick one or the other. I don't like one better than the other. I appreciate both of them for what they do. I love watching both of them play. It makes me excited to watch football because they're playing. What are your thoughts, Alan? Yeah, very political answer by you. Not wanting to alienate either of your favorites there. Uh, Greer, there is something kind of magic to him, whether it's kind of the improvisation post-snap running around. He does have a little bit of that electricity to him. Probably some of that's his personality is a little bigger than Trask, at least the public one. But Trask, I love what he puts out. He's like a machine. And, yeah, you don't have to worry about him maybe parting too hard or doing something dumb. But, yeah, they're both phenomenal. And, you know, thankful that we have Kyle Trask here now, despite the fact that we lost Will Greer a little bit earlier. It's not like he died. He didn't. He just left Florida. Um, let's talk about kind of discussion that went on on deep passes. And, you know, you got into a discussion with some people on social media about, you know, throwing the ball deep and some of our proficiencies and deficiencies with that. And even what, what do we mean when we say throwing the ball deep? So you want to outline a little bit of that discussion? So in case you don't follow us on Twitter, uh, normally it is me on Twitter. The secret's out. It's not Alan all that often. So if you're emailing or Twittering the page or tweeting at us, rather, uh, it's probably me responding, sometimes Alan. In this case, I think Alan called me as I was in the throes of posting this data and I think I called him back and said, Alan, I'm in, I'm in the midst of a full-on Twitter debate here, which was a grand old time last week. But I had basically compiled some data looking at Trask versus Franks. And the reason I did it was not attempt to, to rub any salt into a wound or anything else. But I kept encountering people out in public who would say, yeah, but Franks is so much better at throwing the deep ball. We threw the ball vertically so much better when Franks played. And I wondered, is that true? And I didn't I didn't know the answer. I thought to myself, that can't be true because I remember on this podcast, Alan, talking about how often we did not connect on deep passes. So, of course, I pulled up the data, began to look, went down the rabbit hole, looked at 20, 30, and 40-yard passes. And not surprisingly, Kyle Trask is better at 20-plus, 30-plus, and 40-plus than Felipe Franks. And by better, what do I mean? I mean he connects on more of his passes. He's on target with more of his throws. He completes more. He throws fewer interceptions. He's on target more. He's just a better, more efficient deep thrower. However, but James, what about 70-yard passes? Right. However, that does not mean that his arm is not as, as stronger rather than Felipe Franks. Of course, Felipe Franks has one of the strongest arms in either college or the NFL. And I think sometimes people confuse a strong arm with downfield proficiency. Uh, in fact, most throws, including in the NFL, Allen rarely travel beyond 50 yards. The large majority of throws per game travel between 15 and 30 when you're talking about a deeper pass, whether you quantify that as 20 or 25, whatever the case may be, uh, that's what you're looking at. And of course, Kyle Trask has been actually very, very good. In fact, he's top 10 in the country if you look at his efficiency on deep passes, which raises another question we got into, and we're not going to spend too much time diving deep into this. You can actually go back and look at our Twitter posting if you want to see what we posted on and kind of some of the comments that went along with it. But the typical next thought is, well, why aren't we throwing deep more? And if you've been listening to this podcast, there's several reasons for that. We, we went through each one last week. We won't rehash them in detail, but that has to do with Coach Mullen's philosophy. It has to do primarily this season, Alan, with an offensive line that can't block long enough to do it. And then lastly, it has to do with teams that have just outright taken that away. While some teams like LSU 
and Missouri have played cover one and have attempted to dare us to throw deep. Other teams like Georgia have played cover two, sat way off the ball. Auburn, cover two, sat way off the ball, where they're making you take underneath passes. So it's really important as a football fan to understand that you can't just always throw deep. As much as I would like to attack vertical routes more often, I wish that that Dan would throw more vertical routes and plays into the playbook. You do have to get protection and time to do it. Another thing about Franks and a final piece on this is Franks' pocket presence was so poor that he would tend to run around and throw more deep passes that had no real shot of connecting. And against Miami, which just turned out to be obviously a very poor team, although their defensive metrics are high, Allen, they're very propped up by playing in a bad ACC, in my opinion. The few deep passes Franks has thrown in his career, he's tended to have a lot of time in the pocket to find who that was. I can, I can tell you this for sure, Allen. If Trask had the time in the pocket that other quarterbacks have, he would be connecting on a lot of downfield passes, which is what we said last week. Against Missouri, we had many, many guys running free downfield. We had no time to connect with them. But as a take-home yeah. point for all of you, and this is, this is where we want to kind of steer the conversation, a deep pass in football only really matters if you connect on enough of them to make the defense worry. You could throw 50 deep passes in a season. If you connect on five or six or 10 of them, that's not good enough. Alan, that's like a three-point shooter in basketball. Being a 15 or 20% shooter, the coach would tell him, never shoot a three. So you have to balance those two things. And what we're trying to say is, if you think that Trask can't throw deep or his arm strength is not good enough, the stats would tell you that is not true. In fact, he is a better deep ball passer than Franks. He's also one of the 10 best deep ball throwers in all of college football when it comes to accuracy and on-target passes. Yeah, I think the image a lot of us have in our mind when we think about Felipe is that Hail Mary, if that's what you want to call it, versus Tennessee where those with just a beautiful arc and Tyree Cleveland runs underneath it. Um, Franks is capable of throwing a really beautiful deep ball and can just unleash it. And if you're thinking about someone like Pat Mahomes, who's kind of a cheat code from every position can launch it to a guy running full sprint down the field. There aren't many people like that. And it doesn't, you don't have to be like that to be successful and a good deep ball thrower is someone who's going to be accurate and give his chance, his players a chance to make plays. Now, being able to throw the ball further is obviously better, but if you're not recognizing it, it doesn't really matter. So like you said, a lot of times those Frank's balls were scramble drills or, you know, kind of a busted play. And there'd be lots of times where someone was open deep and Frank's would miss him. So kind of, I don't know, 50, 50 there on what, what do you even think about his ability to even throw it deep? If he doesn't recognize it, does it even matter? Okay, enough about that. Let me ask you this next question. So we have a chance with a win this week against FSU to win 10 games in a row. Excuse me, 10 games for two years in a row. Does that matter to you at all? Yes and no. Yes, and that it's indicative of the fact that we have risen to a new level of consistency. No, because not all 10 wins are created the same. On this very podcast this year, Alan, I predicted us to win 10 games and win nothing. And last year, I think I predicted nine and maybe you had 10, if I recall correctly. Uh, so maybe that's the expectation. And I don't think neither you or I were flowery 
I know I got into several discussions this season, preseason, saying, well, man, 10 games seems like a lot of games. Vegas lines at nine. Why are you confident? You know, it's primarily based upon who we were going to play. And next season, if you want to peek ahead to our schedule, we have a very favorable schedule. And so that's why you sort of look at it and say, yes, it's great. We're consistent. We're no longer the Will Muschamps or Jim McElwain's of the world. But who do you want to be at Florida, Allen? How do you view Florida? Is Florida a national championship caliber program where every couple of years we're in the hunt with a top five? Or is Florida a school that wins 10 games and feels good? And this goes back to the famous Spurrier line where Spurrier was just wrong. The point of playing is not to win 10 games. Last time I checked, Alan, you don't get a trophy for winning 10 games. That does not mean that that's not successful in the general narrative of this team is getting better, but you don't win anything. If we won 10 games for the next 20 years and didn't hang a single banner, didn't win the SEC East, didn't win an SEC title, didn't go to the playoffs, is that success? No, it's not. So I think the answer is yes and no. I think sometimes as fans, people get too hung up on this mythical 10-win number. And again, not all 10 wins are created the same. If you're Texas A&M this season, Alan, you're about to play a number one team for the third time. Whereas if you're Florida, you played two elite teams, you lost to both of them, you showed progress. This year's 10-win season, if we beat Florida State, is better than last year's, in my opinion. That's progress. That's good. We were more competitive in those elite games. That matters more to me. So the record itself, not as important. How we play against top competition, how we handle inferior competition, those two things do matter a lot to me. How about you? Yeah, it's funny. I was going to mention Texas A&M. You know, a nine-win season for them would have been almost heroic. Ten wins would have been incredible. And, you know, some of those Auburn teams went in ten games a couple years ago. You're like, wow. They ran through a gauntlet and got 10 wins. That's really impressive. So because FSU is down a little bit, Miami is down a little bit, you know, in different years, this could have been a, a more robust 10 wins, you know, because you had a win over Auburn in there as well. Yeah, I do think it's important. Consistency is important. Progress is important. I don't want to stamp, you know, us and say we've arrived, you know, that, this means we're quote unquote successful. I agree with you that the standards at Florida and I don't want to be, I don't know, an oblivious fan and have standards that aren't realistic, but I think these are realistic is that we challenge for SEC championships and national championships. And we're, we're close. We're obviously close. We're not quite there yet. But I don't feel like this season, like, okay, represents the high point of any era and that we're going to fall off the face face of the earth under this current regime. So I think it is good. I think it's a good mile marker. Um, but I don't I don't want to celebrate it too much. It's obviously with the last decade of Florida football, back-to-back season of 10 wins, you can celebrate that and say that's really good. Even though McElwain came close to doing that, it feels different than that. So I'm kind of with you. I I want to see us win the biggest games and, you know, it doesn't mean you have to go undefeated to have a tremendous schedule. If you lose one game in the SEC and, you know, make that title game, it doesn't matter. You're going to have a chance at the playoff. I think the big component here is next year is Georgia. And, you know, you tell me we win 10 games next year is one of them Georgia. I feel pretty good about that schedule. Well, considering, like you said, who we're playing, maybe not, but even a one loss season with a win against Georgia, I think would represent 
serious progress. And that means you're probably playing in the SEC championship game representing the SEC East. So, uh, yeah, not totally ambivalent about 10 wins. I don't want to disregard it, but still further progress to be made. Let me take this one step further. We got into a yeah, great man. conversation on our text thread, which generates a lot of conversation for this very podcast yesterday, where one Rick Kingsley brought up the concept of Dan Mullen being a gatekeeper. Now, I want to pitch this to you because you as an MMA fan, as a UFC fan, perhaps has best defined the gatekeeper for me throughout the years, to which I then actually in turn defined on the text thread yesterday. Before before we start this, I'm going to ask you, is Dan Mullen right now, given the data we have on him in the UFC kind of mindset, a gatekeeper? And before you answer that, why don't you walk us through what that means? Let's define what that means before then you That's answer question. the question. Yeah. So a gatekeeper would be a guy who sits around, you know, the the edge of the top ten. You know, maybe he's the tenth best, ninth, eleventh, twelfth, somewhere around there, where if you can beat him, you probably deserve a title shot or at least a shot at like a top contender kind of guy. And if you can't beat him, you're not there yet. But every time that guy goes up against elite competition, he loses. So he might win a couple game, win a couple matches in a row, but then when he runs up against the best, if it's close, he's going to lose. That's a really fascinating discussion. Um, I would say the jury is out on Dan Mullen being a gatekeeper. I mean, at Mississippi State, that's I think that's what he proved. You know, there's this other kind of question mark that's always surrounding him is can he what would he do if he was able to assemble elite talent with elite resources at a place like Florida? And we haven't seen it yet. Of course, he is fulfilling, you know, part of his job, like you said, beating teams we're supposed to. And we are right there against LSU and Georgia. Those games were very close and winnable games. But if you applied that tag to him, I don't think it would be totally unfair, but I think the jury is still out. So I don't think he's locked in that status by any means. I, I do think he has another level as a coach. Um, he's going to take a different path. He's not maybe a burning comet, but just a gradually accelerating freight train, hopefully. And so I don't, I'm not resigned to him being a gatekeeper yet, but that certainly could be his future if things don't continue to develop here at Florida. I think that's the right way to look at it is, is it's, it's not right right now to assign a tag to him definitively. But if you had to assign a tag to him right now, hey, put a label on this guy right now. Not saying he's going to be this way forever, but right now, what's his label? His label right now is, is definitively gatekeeper. He struggles mightily against the top five, top 10, and he consistently beats teams below him. That is the definition of a gatekeeper. But that doesn't mean he's always going to be a gatekeeper. As you said, Alan, the jury is still out. So when you're having these conversations, you have to keep both of those things in mind. One, look at what's actually happened. Forget about what you hope for, what you dream of. Look at the data. The data suggests gatekeeper. Okay, He has not been doing it long enough at an elite school to have earned that tag definitively. We talk a lot about this three-year rule, the three-year test on coaches at elite schools. Basically, you have three years. Anytime within those three years, you need to either win your conference championship or get to the playoff. If you don't do that, you basically are never going to win a national title. Yes, it's that definitive. It's that interesting. 
Uh, Clemson is often brought up as an anomaly to this. The reality is Clemson was not an elite school. I challenge you to go back and look at what they were before Dabo was there. I promise you they were not like Florida, LSU, Texas, Alabama, or other schools. They were in a class beneath them. They certainly are now. So if Dabo left, the next coach would get three years, and he would have to basically kind of do that on his own. We talk a lot about it. We'll talk more about it in the offseason. But right now, Dan Mullen will be entering his third season next season, Allen. And in theory, if he were not to make a conference championship game and win or make a playoff, you would have a lot of warning flags that he may never get there. Now, of course, there's always exceptions to the rule in life. There's a lot of things we'll talk about and unpack when that time comes. But for now, I think it is safe to say, Alan, given your definition, that's where you would put Dan Mullen. If you're ranking all the coaches in the NCAA, Dan Mullen would fall somewhere between six, five or six if you're on the highest optimistic end and 10 or 11, 12 if you're more on the other end. But that's somewhere in there in college football would be that sort of gatekeeper role. And again, the jury's still up. But a really interesting way to look at Dan Mullen, that's not a knock on Dan Mullen, by the way. That's a that's a, a hallmark of a gatekeeper's consistency is that's what they do, is if you're going to be elite and you're going to be a contender, you must beat this person. But they themselves don't necessarily have what it takes As we know, as we've covered, Alan, the major Achilles heel for one coach, Dan Mullen, is his talent assembling, his recruiting. We just aren't getting good enough players. We talked about it the day he got hired. We've talked about it every single year since then. We will keep talking about it. We can say this until we're blue in the face. Well, what if Dan had this? Well, what if Dan had this? Well, you know what? Dan's at Florida. Dan's got to make his own what ifs. It's time for him to get the talent until we get the talent You can win nine or 10 games as many years in a row as you want. But if you don't hang a banner, Allen, it doesn't really matter. And that would then be the definition of a gatekeeper. So Bo on this one, not definitive yet. I think the data suggests he's somewhere in there, as you said. It makes it fascinating then to follow Dan into this next season to see what happens and where things go. But a kind of a fun visual for you to think about maybe where we are as a coach. You can debate one end or the other. But we wanted to kind of give you that picture in your mind. Uh, it's, it's, again, it's a really interesting discussion. You rarely see a guy in coach Mullen's spot where he's been so consistent at beating everyone and then naturally struggled against the elites. It's very, very interesting. All right, Alan, let's switch gears. Good opening talk, good opening conversation. Talk some quarterbacks, talk to my boy, Will Greer, who may get a shot in Carolina sometime this season. Keep an eye on that one. And now it's time to talk about what happened Last weekend across the country, Florida's on a bye. If you were like Alan, you were on a cruise somewhere, you caught maybe none of these games. And if you were like me, I was at a wedding and I caught maybe half these games. Either way, we hope you had a good time with your downtime. And before we get into the games, Alan, let's give you our sponsor, mybookie.ag. No one gives you more ways to win than they do. MyBookie's got the fastest payouts and better lines than any other sportsbook. Join now and MyBookie will double. That's right, they'll double your first deposit. Just use our promo code GatorNation to activate the offer. That promo code is GatorNation. Visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. Alan, if if our listeners would have followed your picks last week, they indeed would have gotten paid. You went a smoldering 9-3. and three. And I went seven and five. Let's go. But you killed it last. Still very week. respectable. What a strong week by yeah. you. Very strong week. Let's let's open with the game that we didn't pick. Miami went quote on the road to FIU. Now, if you don't know where FIU plays, they play in the Miami Marlins ballpark. And if that doesn't ring a bell for what that used to be, let me tell you, that was the Orange Bowl where the Hurricanes used to play. 
So Miami is going to play in the old Orange Bowl, which is now the Marlins Stadium, against Allen, none other than Butch Davis, who used to coach Miami, left before they won their national title. He's coaching FIU. And what happens? FIU wins 30-24. What do you make of this? Man, FIU has not been like a burgeoning juggernaut this season or anything. Miami seemed like they had maybe cleared a few hurdles, gotten by FSU. Maybe they were turning a corner a little bit, but this is a really bad loss for them. Yeah, this is a train wreck, and you saw a lot of Miami fans. They were not able to explain this one. This was a loss they could not accept. And, of course, they're banging the drum sort of of the, maybe we should bring Butch Davis back. Maybe he needs to be here. But interesting times at both Miami and Florida State right now. It did not work out the way they thought it may have in year one. Manny Diaz is a year one coach. He has a lot to learn. The jury's still out on him, but definitely not the kind of debut they were looking for. Number 12, Michigan, was favored by eight at Indiana. They demolished Indiana 39-14. You join the, you join that side with me of riding Michigan, Allen. They are playing very, very well heading into this game against Ohio State. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, they set up a really nice big game with Ohio State. I mean, Michigan is rolling right now. They look much better off. It's almost completely different than the way they looked at the beginning of the season when they were so disappointing. I'm really excited to see this game. Yeah, this is a resurrection. We we sort of pronounced Harbaugh maybe dead. We said, keep an eye on this program. Maybe he doesn't care anymore. Maybe this is the the end for him. And they have done completely the opposite of that. They are playing their best football towards the end of the year, which, again, is the point of playing sports. It's one of the reasons why I wish there was a bigger playoff. They are dangerous. I'm really looking forward to this matchup this weekend. Uh, Michigan is the team a lot of people thought they were going to be. Unfortunately for them, it was a little late to sneak into any kind of playoff picture. All right, number 21, SMU on the road against Navy. Navy was hit by four. Navy hangs on to win 35-28 in a very entertaining back-and-forth game. Alan, thoughts on this one? Yeah, Navy is (laughs) – you don't ever really want to play them because they're so unique. SMU, I thought they'd be able to put up more points than they were able to against Navy's defense. I Again, this conference is wild. It's fun to watch every week or to keep track of however you're kind of covering it. So good win for Navy, though, for sure. Yeah, Navy's a tough team to play. SMU played very well against them, given the situation, given the fact that SMU struggles to stop teams on defense. And all in all, had the ball there at the end and could not put it in. Had two cracks at it, couldn't get it in. Good win by Navy. Good season by Navy. UCLA goes on the road to USC. USC wins 52-35. Proving exactly what we said. There's a lot of talent there at USC. But if you're a UCLA fan, Alan, you quietly start to feel like Chip Kelly has something going there. Sophomore quarterback is scoring a lot of points. They're starting to move in a better direction. So maybe both schools oddly feel good about their future. USC expecting to part ways with with their coach. UCLA expecting Chip Kelly to take a, a year three step forward. Interesting kind of dynamic there in that game. Right. For USC, you probably were hoping to not allow UCLA to score this many on you. But UCLA, yeah, weirdly maybe encouraged. I don't know. that. I wouldn't take too much from that, though. I I maybe stopped drinking the Kool-Aid if UCLA, this USC team, is a flawed team, even if they are a talented one. Temple on the road against Cincinnati, a team we had talked about, Allen, being so battle-tested. We really liked this line. Cincinnati, in our opinion, was over-favored. They hang on to win 15 to 13. Yeah, this is 
two defensive minded teams and we thought the score would be tight and it was. So that felt like an easy one at the time. And I guess we turned out to be right. The second biggest surprise of the weekend, maybe the biggest surprise if you don't want to count FIU over Miami. Number six, Oregon goes to the fighting Herm Edwards who had just a phenomenal season, I think, by any stretch of the imagination, even though they collapsed there in the middle of it, gets a program-defining win maybe for him with a 31-28 win over Oregon, who a lot of people thought were gaining a lot of momentum for a playoff run. If you'd asked me if I had to pick the fourth playoff team, I would have picked Oregon for this game. This is mind-numbingly bad for them. Arizona State had lost like five in a row or four in a row, whatever it was. I mean, they're a tough team, but Oregon has no business losing this game to them. Gosh, I'm makes you question everything as an Oregon fan to go in there and lose this game at this point in the year. Yeah, what gets me here is to give up 31 points to an Arizona State team. That's where you lost this game. You can't count on For your sure. offense to score 50 points on the road all the time. Arizona State had been struggling to score more than two touchdowns. Brutal, brutal loss for them. They were so high. Their their season hopes were so high and, and sort of dashed on the rocks there in Arizona State. We're not done hearing from them yet, of course, uh, but their playoff hopes are definitely dead. TCU on the road at Oklahoma. They had the ball at the end of the game trying to win the game. They wind up throwing an interception. Oklahoma yet again survives 28-24. Yeah, if you're a Sooner fan, you're probably – you know, going to the pharmacy for some cardiac medication. They have played a close kind of crazy game every week, seems like, for the last five or six. Hanging around, hanging around. Almost all of TCU's losses this year, Allen, have come by one score or less in the last possession. It's been a crazy roller coaster ride for them. Oklahoma on the better end of that. This Oklahoma team is not winning anything this year. They're just not good enough. Not good enough on offense, not good enough on defense. You see this step down from both Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray to Jalen Hurts. Although Jalen Hurts is having a great season statistically, he's not either of those guys. And that's why these games are as close as they are. If Oklahoma can score 40 here, it's not this way. He can't. That defense, although maybe somewhat better, not good enough. They could still obviously get into the playoff, but you have a hard time seeing them doing anything at this point. Here's a team that could do something. Maybe is more deserving than others ahead of them. Number seven, Utah goes on the road against Arizona, covers the spread, and wins 35-7. to Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see what that Oregon loss does to their, I don't know, resume should they go on and beat Oregon. But they're rolling right now, and they're going to be a tough out no matter who plays them. You're going to have to show up to play to beat them for sure. Yeah, solid year. They were the team. A lot of the the smart money, if you were, were predicting to win the Pac-12 this year, and they are in the driver's seat. For and sure. old Lee Corso picked them to make the playoff on game day at the beginning of the season, so maybe he might get that right. Lee Corso, he, he sometimes knows what he's doing. Love Lee. All right, Boston College, I foolishly, totally unwisely, took them to play within 20 points of Notre Dame. They got beat like a drum 40-7. to Notre Dame, oddly, having a late season resurgence as well. Well, yeah, do you think you were just too bullish on Steve Adazio's ability to get Boston College up for this? Are you just maybe not – you're too down on Notre Dame? Where do you think you went wrong? Yeah, I, w- I was too bearish on Notre Dame, and Steve Adazio's Boston College team could run the ball. I feel like 20 points was a lot for a Notre Dame team that had been struggling at points. But clearly these past couple of games, Notre Dame has found something. They've improved as a team. 
these are games where Brian Kelly typically will win by a lot, but uh, you know, good for Notre Dame. Some some interesting turnaround stories this season. The next team we're going to talk about maybe is yeah the largest, right? Pitt goes on the road to Virginia Tech, who was only favored by three and a half. And of course, I said Allen jump on the train, right? Virginia Tech is mowing people down. You and I hopped on this train. They won twenty eight to nothing. Man, this Virginia Tech team has all of a sudden turned into a really dangerous team. It doesn't matter for anything, but yeah, you if you had an important game left, you would not want to play them. They're playing very well right now. And Pitt is a tough out. And to so to blank them is a quite a statement by the Hokies. Yeah, this is where if it was March Madness, if we had December Madness, nobody would want Vatek in their bracket right now as a sort of like eight or nine seed, right? They could they could be dangerous. They're playing really, really good football. Uh, number 24, Texas A&M, as we mentioned earlier, an absurd schedule this season, goes on the road to Georgia, narrowly loses 19-13. This one felt like free money, Allen, given the way Georgia was playing for them to be favored by two scores. Uh, A&M easily inside that point spread. Do you think that UGA has enough to be able to make any kind of noise against LSU and then in a playoff? Or is this just sort of what they are, uh, 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 an underperforming team that's going to underperform their way out of any kind of playoff? Well, I think their problem is going to be if they don't play perfectly on defense, someone is going to beat them, and maybe handily. So they're holding on against AM. I mean, AM, I don't think, played well in this game and was still in it at the end and could have won it. So UGA, I just have no confidence that if they have to put up points, they will. And this continues to frustrate me so much, Alan. I take two thoughts away from this. One, Jake Fromm, yet again, under 50% on third downs, well under them in this game. That's now three games in a row post-Florida that he has struggled. His completion percentage below 50%, basically terrible, uh, really, really below average quarterbacking against good competition. A&M, not surprisingly, Alan played what? A ton of cover one man. It disgusts me. I think of a lot of Gator losses in my career, both both basketball and football. That Georgia loss will stick with me maybe forever because of the the just horrific train wreck defensive coaching job we employed, which cost Kyle Trask and these Florida Gators, I think, a chance to play in the SEC title against an LSU team that oddly we could play with given the matchups. It makes me sick to see it each and every week. It was right there in front of us. On the flip side, Alan, Jimbo Fisher, I think, continues to do what you expect him to do. He's very competitive in these games. His team is still flawed. He's recruiting better. They're moving in the right direction. If and when he gets a quarterback, this team will be very dangerous. A team that is not so dangerous, that has failed the three-year test that we talked about definitively last week, only went on the road and furthered their troubles. Texas loses to Baylor 24-10. Texas had been playing close games. I picked them to cover that spread. They did not. Baylor, on the other hand, back to their winning ways. What are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I didn't see any of this game, but really good win for Baylor. Bouncing back from that just crushing defeat against Oklahoma. And I think that says a lot about Matt Rule and his staff that they were able to get them back up and running. You know, because Texas is still a team that is dangerous if you were not to respect them. But I guess they just laid the smack down on that's a really good win for Baylor. Baylor, very dangerous. Keep an eye on them. I think going into a rematch with Oklahoma Island, I'm going to pick Baylor. I'm going to put that on record now. They're building a defense there, which is interesting. They're interesting. They're intriguing to me. I'm not sure how the playoff committee would handle them if they are a one-loss team that comes out with a win against Oklahoma and they're a conference champion. Let's just keep an eye on that one. Number nine, Penn State. 
on the road against number two, Ohio State. Kind of a weird game. Ohio State controlled this game probably should have been 45 or so to maybe three. Really, I think a significant talent difference, which we highlighted before. That's why we both picked Ohio State. Uh, instead, you know, 28-17 is the final score. Yeah, I felt like Ohio State was in control this whole time and just some weirdness allowed Penn State to get back into it. So maybe Ohio State exposing a few of their flaws, but uh, it didn't matter because Penn State just couldn't keep up. Yeah, it seems to me the flaw to Ohio State, which is not a stretch to anyone's imagination, would be can they pass the ball against a team that can stop them running? So far, no one has been able to stop them running as a team, whether it's Justin Fields or any one of their running backs. They've just had a world of difficulty stopping that. They've also gone against teams that are entirely undermanned talent-wise. I don't love this Ohio State team, Alan. I've been saying it all year long. I think they're very good. I think they're one of those top three teams. I don't love them. So I can think they're a tier one team, but I just don't love their makeup. I don't know how they're going to handle a two-game playoff stretch. I'm not sure how they're going to handle Michigan this weekend, who might be capable at stopping them from running the football. That's why I'm really, really looking forward to it. But Penn State is going to be another question. James Franklin has been unable, I think, to recruit enough talent there to play with the big boys. And in this game, again, they were super fortunate, super fortunate, Alan, to be in this game. It took three gift fumbles from Ohio State to make this game what it was. Otherwise, it would have been an obliteration. Ryan Day said as much. So should be an interesting finish for Ohio State. All right, let's look at the rest of the SEC. Mostly a collection of blowouts. Western Carolina at Bama. Bama wins 66-3 to with Mac Jones. Any thoughts here? None at all. No, Bama's season is in an interesting and, and sad place, minus Tua. Good to see Tua on the field. Gave a really quality speech. I mean, just seems to be a great human being. Sanford at Auburn. Auburn wins 52-0. We're going to find out what happens this weekend, obviously, with both those I teams. But nothing bold. to see there. Yep. Kentucky lays the smackdown against UT Martin, 50-7. to And Mark Stoops, maybe more importantly, Allen, has reportedly turned down the Florida State job. That was probably the bigger news coming out of the weekend in Lexington. Uh, do you believe that? I think I believe that, and I'll tell you why. Vegas moved his number from one of the favorites to be the coach way back down there. He went from like plus 200 to plus 1250. So Vegas does not move things without some some substantial smoke they believe to be real. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe it some. Yeah, do you think that that, well, not that he won't be the coach there, but that he turned them down. That that feels like impossible that he would turn that down. Unless just the AD situation, the present situation feels like too much of a mess for him. I think that could but, be the that could be the problem. And look, he really does like Kentucky. He's mentioned that before. Kentucky gave him a long leash there, as we know, Alan. They've been very patient with him. You look at Florida State, you got a dumpster fire athletic department, uh, athletic department, athletic director potential situation out there publicly sending letters to raise money to hire the next coach. I'm not sure if Mark Stoops wants to walk into that right now. I don't know. I think he'd want to sit at the table and listen or at least use it to negotiate with Kentucky. I'm not saying the final word is in on him. But again, when Vegas backs off that hard, there's typically some truth behind um, the reality of him going there. Sometimes, you know, coaches put out there, oh, yeah, I turned them down. They were never serious candidates. So we'll see. Okay, Vandy rolls ETSU 38-0. So I guess that's good for Vandy, but I guess who cares as well. Derek Mason, fresh off a surprising contract extension, goes mm-hmm. against a big win. Arkansas at LSU, 20-56. to So LSU just kind of 
keeping things rolling here until they get to the SEC title game, I guess. Yeah, let's use weaknesses at defense. That's going to be everything for them in that in that championship game against Georgia and then the playoff if they get there. All right, Abilene Christian at Mississippi State, 7-45. to 45. Nothing there. Whatever. Uh, Tennessee at Missouri wins 24-20. to 20. They maybe would consider this season a success now. I guess that's a solid win at Missouri for them. And yeah, after they started 0 2, they've, they've moved forward. I mean, again, I don't, I'm not a believer in Pruitt, but if you are on the Pruitt train, this is nice fuel for that engine. This is a, a huge success for Tennessee. Vegas had them at six wins. They're going to play against Vanderbilt uh, as their final game and going to get, you know, what should be a, a layup win to get to seven. Seven wins exceed Vegas, and then a bowl game that they're probably going to be able to win as well, potentially. They might get to eight wins, Alan. More importantly, they resurrected what was a horrifically bad start with a lot of coaching speak, quote, noise in the system. Uh, on the road at Missouri, Guantanamo, as we like to jokingly call him, you know, Jared Garantano, throws for 415 yards, Alan, against that Missouri secondary that was one of the best in the SEC. 415 they had 500 plus yards of offense in this game. You cannot ignore what Tennessee is doing right now. This team is infinitely better than they were. They're easily a loss or two away from being a nine-win team. And whether you like Pruitt or not, I thought before the year that Pruitt was going to put them into a better standing and a better situation. I stand by that. As to whether or not he's going to bring them to you know competitive levels that equal Florida or Georgia. That remains to be seen. But if you're a Tennessee fan, if I'm a Tennessee fan right now, this is probably the best I've felt in a while. There's talent on the roster. He seems to be going in the right direction. It's really, really important to finish better than you start as a coaching staff to make improvements, to develop players. All those things seem to be going on at Tennessee. You can't make any bigger judgment than that. But I have to imagine Tennessee fans are feeling very good about where they are today versus where they were in the middle of September. Let me ask you this hypothetical. Let's say they lost to Vandy next weekend. Would you fire him? Yes. You can't. Vanderbilt, as we chronicle on this podcast, we spent about five minutes pregaming them as one of the worst Vanderbilt teams of all time. They're horrific. And that would show a tremendous regression in development, and it would eliminate everything I just said. So, yes, I would, Alan. That <coughs> sounds extreme, but you just can't. You can't lose to teams that are vastly inferior to you. Sure. Towards, so they're still Especially towards the end of the season. The edge. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, let's turn our attention to the team out west. My most hated rival, for sure, a team that I want to see lose at everything, women's water polo, men's tennis, I don't care. I want to see them go down. They are 6-5. and five. We are 9-2. and two. We are currently a 17-point favorite. Won 41-14 last year. It's a great number. They don't have any signature signature wins. They lost to this currently discussed Miami team, 27 to 10. They lost to Clemson, 45-14. Their five-year recruiting composite rank is sixth. You know, they have five five stars. We're currently 16th. They have 16 returning starters, eight on offense, eight on defense. I guess that's technically a good thing. All right, do you want to read a little bit here of some stuff that you – um, got from Blake Alderman, who wrote an interesting article 
a lot of these horse. a lot of these facts are out here right but we wouldn't give blake alderman credit because this is where i'm reading most of them from some came from a message board but blake he's been on the show many times before we'll give him some love just some some notes about kind of what's going on right now between florida florida state and and coach dan mullen so if we beat florida state for consecutive seasons which would be this season and last season it'd be the first time since 2009 that that happened so it's been a decade plus since we've won two games in a row which obviously sucks right simple enough there we can also finish with wins over Miami and Florida State for the first time since 2008. That's pretty great news. Good to be both your in-state rivals. We don't play Miami very often. Those kind of stats tend not to be quite as important. We talked about this one already, Alan. A win on Saturday will give Florida a second straight 10-win season for the first time since posting 13 wins in both 08 and 09. Dan Mullen's final year as an offensive coordinator was 08, and then 09, of course, was the Steve Adazio experiment. A win would also make Mullen the first head coach in Gator history, as we talked about, to win 10 games in each of his first two seasons. A lot is being made out of this. I don't make quite as much out of this other than to say he's done what we expected him to do, which takes nothing away from him. And let me just say one more thing on that. If you are a Clemson fan or an Alabama fan or an Ohio State fan, you would, rightfully so, expect to win almost all of your games every single year. That does not mean you're ungrateful. It means you have X amount of talent, X amount of coaching skill. Therefore, you expect to win most of your games. We all knew what Dan Mullen was. He has proven to be great at that. I, and I know you too, Alan, are very thankful for that. We are super happy to have a competent coach who can do all these things. That is never a knock on someone to say that you are not impressed or stoked or really excited about what's going on. It's just to put in measure that a lot of people expected Dan Mullen, I think, to do very well with roster management and development. And I think he's exceeded those expectations. And this is going to give him a chance to be the first coach ever at Florida to win 10 win seasons in his first two seasons. Good accomplishment. All right, we can finish undefeated home for the 14th time since 1990, Allen. Only the third time, though, since 2010. And here's a couple of offensive stats. Of course, we can't get away from these because the debate continues with which quarterback should play, which, of course, blows my mind. I referenced a movie I hope all of you watch this Christmas and holiday season, The Family Man with Nicolas Cage. You'll see that smacked out of your mind comment, and hopefully you will chuckle at it hilariously. But right now, Alan, UF ranks 19th nationally in passing offense at 292 yards per game. This is the first time in at least a decade we've had passing numbers at that level, which we've talked about before. This will be the highest national finish in passing in offense outside of the start of 2010. So to give you some numbers from the previous years, in 2016, we were 79th. We finished outside the top 100 in four of the nine seasons between 2010 and 2018. We were 41st nationally in 2009, which is Tim Tebow's last year, if you will recall. Last year, Alan, we were 83rd in passing. So I don't know what any of you need numbers-wise to give you pause and reason for the extremely high level that Trask has played to get on this train, ride it, enjoy it, and celebrate it. But there are some numbers for you. Here is a number that's not so good. Last year, we finished 27th nationally in rushing offense. This year, we are almost certainly going to finish below 100. So as we've said many times before, beating a dead horse here, Alan, to have this kind of a passing attack with this kind of rushing attack is incredible. 
do not sleep on it. So those are some opening numbers to kind of set the table for what's going to be our showdown uh, versus Florida State. Okay, let's get to FSU's coaching staff. Odell Haggins is their current interim coach. This is actually his second time doing this. He's been at FSU for 26 years. He's their D-line coach as well. Offensive coordinator Kendall Bryles, who's been at FSU, excuse me, FAU, Houston, Baylor, son of Art Bryles, of course. It's his first year. Harlan Barnett, second year there, came from Michigan State. So kind of a mix of old and new here on this staff. Um, of course, the head coach, Willie Taggart, has already been fired, which leads me to ask you this question, James, before we get into all the analysis. Did you pick up any difference post Willie Taggart? So they played two games. They played a close game against Boston College where they won and then blew out Alabama State. You do tend to find that the player discipline is better. If you're talking about schematically on offense or defense, has anything improved? The answer to that question is no. Florida State still has a lot of deficiencies, but the team itself does seem to be playing a more organized, more respectful brand of football, if you will. It's clear now with Odell running the show that the shenanigans that were maybe allowed beforehand, before the game, during the game, after the game, kind of the wildness of what led Kurt Herbstreit to talk about how he's not going to talk about Florida State anymore, that stuff seems to be cut out. And that would make sense from a guy who's been on staff for 26 years, who has seen the absolute peak of Florida State as a football team. That's why you put him as an interim. He is 4-0 as an interim coach, but not on film. If you pull it out on film, the certain things they were weak against before, they're still weak against. They have not changed anything schematically. This is not like Willie Taggart, of course, had schemes, Alan, right? The knock on Willie Taggart is. I'm not really sure if he has any idea what he's doing X's and O's wise on either side of the ball. So it didn't. It wasn't like you got a philosophy shift where one guy comes out and in comes the next guy who's going to change what you do. You have the same coaches doing the same things. You do have overall better parenting, if you will, better control over the athletes and what's happening. That's the biggest difference I pick up. But no, nope, not when it comes to film. You don't see like, wow, against Clemson they were doing this and now they're doing this. Uh, it, it's really the same, the same stuff on both sides of the ball. So as we get into LSU, excuse me, FSU's offense you know for years now their offensive line has been their biggest weakness it still is um and so they're poor rushing the ball as we are um they do have a more balanced run pass ratio 49 to 51 i don't know if that's good or not when when you looked at them on film what else did you pick up well, what you notice is their offensive line is is very poor, and it's 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 much worse than ours, uh, which says a lot, given what you've heard us say about our own O-line. The benefit Florida State has had, Allen, is they have not played the competition we have, especially when you're going against ACC front sevens. They're vastly inferior talent-wise. This is a very, very poor offensive line. Clemson exposed and abused them, obliterated them in the first half, and basically just called the dogs off for the entire second half. Uh, they just have no business competing with teams that are really at their talent level. And this goes to show you something that, again, Tyler Rummery on our thread, it gets mentioned a lot, and we talked about this yesterday. Not all five stars are created equal. And beyond just the fact that talent's different, Alan, you have to have talent at certain positions. And certain positions in football are definitely more important than others. And if you play fantasy football and you're familiar with scarcity and other things, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that right now, but you cannot win anything 
without at least an average offensive line. When your offensive line is as bad as Florida State's is, it does not matter what kind of offense you are running. When you come up against a good team, you are going to struggle. That is exactly what has happened to them all year long. When they bump up against a talented team, they have a very, very hard time not taking a lot of sacks, a lot of runs for losses. It's just a consistent problem for them. On one plus side, they amazingly throw a below average amount of interceptions given how under pressure both of their quarterbacks have been, whether it's Horny Brooker Blackman. They have not thrown a plethora of picks, which is to their to their positive, I suppose. And that's maybe a, a difference that Kendall Bryles has made this season. The quarterbacks at least understand uh, not throwing the ball into really poor situations all the time. But that's that's trying to find a positive from what's obviously a tremendous negative. Yeah, they're interesting in that, you know, their offense, I guess, is slightly different this year. Um, they were such a train wreck last year. They're a little bit better. Do you notice any real difference between Blackman and Hornybrook when they're out there? There's actually a significant difference in the numbers. And in fact, if you look at their individual passing splits and breakdowns, Hornybrook is a better quarterback, and it's it's pretty significantly so. Yet Blackman is the one they choose. Neither one of them can run well. Blackman runs better than Hornybrook, but he's not really a runner. It's actually kind of interesting to me, Alan, based upon the numbers alone. They haven't just stuck with Hornybrook for a while. They were playing both, which shows you they really had no idea what to do. I don't think either one of them makes a big difference. That's what your question is getting at. They both do some things better than others. I think Hornybrook would be the clear choice if the offensive line was somewhat competent. He's a much better decision maker. But there really isn't a huge difference in how they play. And it's not like an Emory Jones versus Kyle Trask. When Horny Brook comes in, he does the same things Blackman does. The offense runs exactly the same. From a scouting perspective as Florida, we're not going to have a guy out there imitating Horny Brook and imitating Blackman, which is which is beneficial from us too. Whereas Florida State's got to have a guy imitate Emory Jones, run the sets Emory runs, and then imitate Trask, run the sets Trask runs. So it's, it's a benefit to us not to have to deal with two different styles at quarterback, even if they are different players. And the dude still has some dangerous guys, obviously, with Cam Akers, Terry, a wide receiver. There's some talent on the roster, just never been able to get anything really out of it. Akers does scare me. Not that from a down-to-down perspective he's going to be a monster, but at any moment he could do something big. He had a big play against us last year called back at a key moment in the game. So a guy that's still a little bit scary. Um, When we're on defense, what are you looking for us to do? Well, I, I, what we're going to do is mix up our coverages. They've they have they have a difficult time picking up blitzes. This is something obviously that isn't grant them sweet spot. Their quarterbacks also struggle with any kind of zone and complexity, which makes sense. Zone is really really great to run Allen when your blitzes get home because it's a lot more confusing. If if you're a quarterback and you're just in man defense and you know they're going to blitz you, you at least know you got a one on one matchup, right? You can you can lob a fade up there, you can run a post, you can run a slant. You kind of know that guy's in man. I can turn my brain off. Just find a way to get that guy the ball. Therefore, most teams have actually played a lot of zone against them, including teams that are much more talented than that play a lot of man like Clemson, which I think is wise. So here's going to be me advocating for. Uh, some more zone than I normally would. Of course, I tend to prefer man, but not against a team like Florida State. And again, game planning is all about attacking a team's weaknesses and deficiencies. I'd like to see us mix up cover one, cover three, cover two, uh, even some quarters defense, which we don't run very often, to give them different looks. They struggle with it. You could bring a lot of different pressures from a lot of different areas. 
And of course, I would like to see us to continue to run dime. Florida State loves to spread the field out. And they love to spread you wide. Dime is an automatic for us. We've been getting used to that set. I wish Juwan Taylor Allen would go away. I think he struggles on film. I think he lacks hustle. It seems like they've cemented him there. Uh, so for now, I'm still taking that lineup over another one. I think that's our best one. So keep the dime going. Bring a lot of different pressures. Uh, change it up when they're in tight. And just sort of change the back-end coverages out of dime, whether you're rotating between Again, one, two, three, or four. And it's a quick rehash in case you're new to the show. Cover one is one high safety where you're going to have basically everyone else underneath locked up with the man in front of them. Maybe they'll switch the routes. Maybe they won't. Uh, Cover two is two high safety splitting the field in half. Everyone beneath them could employ a variety of different zones. That's pretty confusing. And then cover three, which is really our team's base coverage defense, is where your corners are going to take deep thirds. They could start up close on the line of scrimmage. Ball snapped. They'll bail back. And you'll have a safety sitting in the middle field as well. That's a safer defense. It's also a very good defense to get interceptions on because it looks like cover one man morphs into a zone. And then cover four is when the corners and the safeties split the fields in quarters deep. Uh, And so that's a good defense to rob any kind of vertical passing game, which, of course, Kendall Browse prefers. A lot of teams will run a decent amount of cover four against them. It's something we rarely ever run. So it will be interesting to see if we run it. I don't think we have to run it. Uh, for what it's worth. On offense, Allen, look for them to continue to do exactly what they do. They try to get really wide splits with their receivers. They stretch the field on you. They run a lot of three and four wide receiver sets. They rarely won five wide receiver sets. They will typically keep a running back back there. And they're looking to attack you with vertical passing routes. And they are absolutely looking to throw the ball to the running back. We have had tremendously great practice with this, whether it's with LSU or Missouri or other teams. This should not be anything new for us, Allen. Our defense should be locked in on this kind of style. They almost exclusively throw the ball to one receiver, although a lot of them have some different catches. But number 15, uh, Tamaron Terry has eight touchdowns on the year. He's a redshirt sophomore. He's having a great season. Uh, He's their main go-to guy. So look for Henderson uh, to lock up on him and then Elam to get some reps on him as well. And then like we said, it could either be number one, James Blackman, or number 12, Alex Hornibrook. Right now, it's slated to be Blackman. It would not surprise me if he struggled if they brought in Hornibrook. They're not married to either one of them. So this is a very interesting matchup defensive-wise versus their offense. Like you said, I do think it favors us. The only real success they had last year was when Francois evaded pressure or moved well in the pocket, didn't get pulled down. He's a tough guy, you know, would take a hit, would stand in there, and they would have a few broken plays. If we can get their quarterback to the ground consistently, it feels like they don't have a hope because they don't have anybody back there who's going to do the type of stuff Francois was capable of. And outside Cam Akers busting a big play, I think they're going to have a really tough road, and they have a possibility to turn the ball over a lot. Now, as you said, they haven't done it as much as you would expect, but if this defense continues to be opportunistic, as they have been the last couple weeks, maybe we'll see a very lopsided score. Okay, let's talk about their defense. We were thinking, what are they good at? Really not much of anything. Give up more yards to the air than on the ground, but they're not generating a lot of sacks or interceptions. Just kind of blah. Is that a a good description of them? It's the perfect description. They have talent on that defense. They lack discipline when it comes to tackling. Uh, They're overly aggressive. They're not well coached on that side of the ball. They also play a lot of zone which is is weird for a lot of reasons. They only play man about 20% of the time, Alan. If you had to look at this matchup on film, 
the first thing you think is this game is tailor-made for us to score a lot of points. We should be able to have our way with them. And I'm going to make a big statement here. It's possible that we might even be able to run the ball a little bit. Whoa, James. Not a whoa, lot. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Calm down there. Calm a down. little bit. It's possible we could actually run the football in this game. It's one of the first times all year I've said on film, maybe we could. They are undisciplined enough that they will give you the edge. They will allow you to run counters on them where the running back starts one way, goes back the other way. Maybe we can. I don't want to get crazy, but we can. But primarily, they have given up a ton of deep plays throughout the air. Uh, If you go read FSU articles or message boards, they are deathly afraid of Kyle Trask's ability to pick apart their defense, which is also a good barometer, by the way, to gauge your own team, is if you really feel like one quarterback's better than another one, go read what other fans, especially fans that pay attention to your team, think about your team and see if they're scared or not. And if they're afraid of a certain player, you can rest assured that they respect him, and they definitely respect Kyle Trask. They are very worried about what we might do to them through the air, uh, and that that is true on film as well. So I like the matchups on both offense and defense, Allen. Um, they fall right into our natural sweet spots. There's really not a lot they do that we are not comfortable stopping with our defense, and there's not a lot they do on defense that we are not very comfortable attacking on offense. This this sets up to be a really nice matchup. So this is interesting on, on defense. I, we talk a lot of X's and O's. We talk a lot of schemes, tactics, strategy. But I would say especially on defense, there's a certain part that comes with effort and intensity. Dan Mullen talks about strain, relentless effort. I think there's a reason these coaches preach that because it, you know, if you can have the perfect strategy and no one cares and people aren't giving 100%, then it's not going to be that effective. If you've got a team who's obliterating you, running the ball down your throat, that can just take over a game. You can throw tactics and strategy out the window because they're just, you know, stealing your soul running the ball. How much of this is FSU starts to crumble when you get up on them? Uh, when you watch them on film, does it seem like there's a lack of effort or is this just misfits with defensive strategy and personnel? It's hard to know because, of course, I'm not evaluating Florida State like we evaluate our own team. But there's no doubt that what you said is true. They, they do quit on games, and a lot of their stats get skewed that way. I think they really get skewed in the passing game. Against the Power 5 teams, their passing stats actually look somewhat decent, yards per play-wise and yardage per game-wise. But it's really a mirage. A lot of those games are like Clemson where it's already 35 nothing in the second quarter, and the game is just over. And they start racking up yardage third and fourth quarter. Teams are kind of playing a softer defense, letting the clock run out. So a lot of their stats are not real, uh, in my opinion. And I think that tends to be what you're saying, Alan. The team does quit. I think under Odell, what you have seen is the team stays focused longer. Uh, But they still struggle. They still struggle. They barely beat Boston College 38-31. You saw Notre Dame destroyed Boston College recently. Boston College bullied them around in line of scrimmage, pushed them, shoved them, had their way with them. Uh, I don't think anything, again, is different. Maybe they hang in this game longer. But look, this is a broken team. They've got broken emotions. They're in They're in the wait for who their next coach is. They don't know who that is yet. There's probably a lot of chaos and turmoil in the locker room. Uh, Odell's doing, I think, a nice job to hold it all together. But at the end of the day, if we were to jump up on them early, which would be the best thing for us to do. I think you could imagine them them pitching at the tent folding and saying, let's just let's just get to bowl practice and move on to another season. 
Yeah, it definitely feels like the air of a front runner. And I don't want to say that just because I want to like pick on them that if they're in the game, they're probably competing a lot more so than once you get up on them, they crumble. And I, I think that's true of a lot of teams potentially. I, it's tough to come from behind. There's a certain level of grit that some teams have that others don't. We talk about that as being clutch or tough. And I think that gets overblown by some if you just don't have like the data or you don't know what you want to say. You can just say platitudes like that. But the other side of that, there's some truth in there that if you compete as a football team, you can narrow the gap because of your intensity and toughness, whether it's mental or physical. And this team seems like it's lacking in both those things. So, you know, I think this game swings a little bit. If we get up early, they turn the ball over, we score efficiently and quickly. This could be really ugly, really quick. The game last year was was kind of close through halftime. We turned it on in the third quarter and really just never let them back in it. But um, that's what I would like to see us do in this game. If we do that, I think it's a really big win for the Gators. Okay, penalties. Again, it's nice to say this. It heavily favors the Gators. So in the past, that's not been true either. Uh, it's favored the other team or it's been a wash, but heavily favors us. And I think that goes towards FSU's being undisciplined. Even if they've cleaned that up a little bit, they're still an undisciplined team. Turnover margin, about the same ratio there. Injuries. Seems like Jabari Zuniga will play in this game. That was been the expectation. Bernie apparently had a schedule a little bit. May or may not see him. I I think if the coaching staff is nervous about him, they won't play him in this game. Although we saw him star in this game last year where he really began to break out as a player. Okay, let me talk to you about this, this kind of meta question before we get into the keys to the game. Last year, I was pretty nervous about this game, not because I thought it was a bad matchup for us or anything like that. It's college football. Weird things happen. And I thought that a loss would have been really devastating to our growth as a program, would have given them hope, would have been one more loss to FSU in the recent years. They were tumbling. It would have given them life on the recruiting trail and everything else. So it just felt like there were so many more negatives for us to lose this game. So it's pretty nervous. Um, let me ask you this year, do you have any level of nervousness heading into this game? None. None at all. And then that largely has to do with the consistency at the quarterback position. I'm obviously very biased towards the quarterback position uh, for a lot of reasons, whether it's coaching or playing or whatever the case may be. That is the most important position on a football team. It's mainly the reason why you will consistently beat inferior teams is you get consistent play from the position that touches the ball every single time. Given our strengths versus our weaknesses, Alan, I like to evaluate my nervousness based upon what I see on film. There is nothing on film that gives me any kind of pause or any reason to worry or anything that scares me in this game. This is as good of a matchup as Florida could get against a Florida State team. Throughout the years, we've had some weird situations where we've been much better than them and they've been much weaker than us and vice versa. But this one is unique to me. I feel maybe the most confident heading into it. And again, that's just based upon the film uh, there seems to be a very wide chasm between us and them. So, no, I'm not nervous at all. How about you? I'm not. And the fact that I'm not maybe makes me a little nervous. I, I don't know hearing us talk about it in this way because this still is a theoretically a talented team. And there there is that kind of rivalry at play here 
So I don't want to totally eliminate them from conversation. Like, you know, basically like we do with Vanderbilt. We're like, ah, this team is trash. Let's not even really talk about them. They do deserve our full attention because they can win the game. If you allow them, I think, um, to make big plays on offense, or if you give the ball away, um, and this team hasn't done that a ton, especially early on. So I'm not that nervous. We'll see how I'm feeling in a couple of days right before the game starts. The, the fact that this is at home, Dan Mullen is the coach, Kyle Trask is the quarterback, eliminates a lot of the weirdness that might creep into this game. Okay. Any other keys to the game for you other than just loving our matchups, both offensively and defensively? I think in a game where you love all your matchups, there's there's always one default key I go to. I could talk about little nuances and things that matter here and there, but they really don't. When you are better and you're in your natural style, you can run your natural offense against their natural defense and vice versa. All that matters, Alan, are turnovers. That is it. Turnovers are the only thing that can make a game that you should win easily turn into something you don't win easily. And that could be something that could happen this weekend. I don't expect it to happen, but that is therefore the key to the game. It's maybe the only stat you need to look at. If Florida State were to be plus two or more in the turnover market or department, that could change things for us. So they could turn it over twice and we could turn it over twice and that may not matter. But if they're plus two, you know that we have four, they have two, uh, we have two, they have none, something like that, right? I think that could especially depending on when they happened in the game and how they happened, that could be enough to make things closer than we want. I think for us to lose, Alan, you'd look at us having to have a turnover margin of four or greater. I don't see us losing without a turnover margin of four or greater. Therefore, that is my key to the game. Keep that beneath four, and I think we're in good shape. I mean, again, we don't like to just pin it on turnovers, but I agree with you 100%. I, I want to say the same thing there and would echo everything you just said. If I'm going to put anything else on it, it would be number of sacks that we accumulate. Um, if we're going to sack them six, seven times plus, I mean, it's going to be a route. And you're right. The only thing that would keep them in would be turnovers. But our defensive line against their offensive line, we need to – dominate that matchup to have the kind of win that we want to where we we do blow them out in a 41-14 kind of game because that I think that's what this team should do. Again, it's college football, it's a rivalry. You don't you can't count on like it being totally normal. So you have to anticipate some weirdness in this game. But the, our team is well coached, our team is well dis- disciplined. Um it's hard for me to think of anything else that would be weird in this game or to get down to the minutia, because as you said, if we play to our strengths, we should perform really well in this game. Okay. Are you ready for a score prediction? I'm ready. And I'm just going to go because I'm feeling it. I saw on Twitter today, thanks to one of our friends of the podcast and friend in life, I guess Daniel Warfel texted me a couple hours ago and said, Hey, check this out. You'll like this. And he was totally right. Uh, Robbie Abreu texts a quote from Dan Mullen from today's press conference that says, we run a balanced offense. We throw the ball to our receivers equally. Yeah, I saw that. I love it. And I pinched myself, Alan, because that is, of course, like a famous quote from Mike Leach, which we've read on this very podcast this year. 
And we also talked about how Dan Mullen almost went to visit Mike Leach last summer. Well, look, I'm hoping he does this summer. I got to tell you that right now. Spoiler alert, please do that, Coach Dan Mullen. But I loved it. That's like my dream come true. And it's not because I always want to pass the ball. As we've said before, you want to do what yields the highest expected yard per play, whatever that is. You don't marry yourself to one or the other. But I love that it seems like Dan Mullen is really starting to lean into this. It makes me so happy. And because of that, Alan, I think the Gators win this game 38 to 10. I love it. That's a good score. I'm going to go close to that. I'm going to go 42 to 12. A little bit better or maybe exactly the same as last year. Just a lot of field goals for them. They keep settling. They can't do anything else. Hopefully, we could see even something higher if this game gets really out of hand. That would be super fun. It's really funny how we never, ever talk about even the games. Before we go on the podcast, Alan and I have a rule that we do not discuss any games from the previous weekend. We don't discuss the Florida games, yet we routinely pick similar scores. And I do find that interesting. We very rarely deviate, uh, I think, I think from each other on these picks. And that, that continues to be something that's that's not surprising, I suppose. But again, we don't look at the data together. So if you're wondering at home, we do not share data we independently do this, uh, and yet here we are, finding both of us predicting a large... Yeah, let's hope that I'm right. Cover on the and spread, yeah. Even more. Even better, even better. And look, this would be a game where you know, I don't gamble on the Gators, but film-wise, uh, this one looks like a home run bet at minus 17. All right, last few discussions here before we look at these upcoming games. This is the big, week, the big weekend. This is rivalry weekend in college football. You have all the best games coming up. But before we do that... Let's update you on the playoff scenario. We told you Oregon's out. We told you Penn State's out. That theoretically leaves Clemson, Georgia, Oklahoma, LSU, Utah, Ohio State, Minnesota, Alabama, and Baylor. Now, a lot of those teams will continue to get filtered out this weekend, but that's what you're seeing on the table before we walk through these national games. When we get to the ones that have playoff implications, we'll tell you what they mean. If the winner does this, they clinch this, etc., so that's what this looks like heading into uh, really the final weekend of college football before we enter into the championship games for most teams. Okay, let's start with the Egg Bowl. Ole Miss at Mississippi State, state favored by three. This is hard for me. These are two of my boys, Joe Moorhead and then Matt Luke. Joe Moorhead tremendously fizzled out. Clearly has not been what Mississippi State fans want him. Matt Luke is feisty. They continue to play well. I think the fact this is a three-point spread is is indicating kind of the failure that's going on at Mississippi State and the success at Old Miss. I'm going to take Old Miss because I think I'm higher on Matt Luke than at Mississippi State and Joe Moorhead. I'm going to take Old Miss in an upset here. Yeah, I mean, I guess the classic, you know, favored by three at home, which tells you that Vegas thinks that these teams are relatively equal. Only because I'm getting points. I think I would take either team getting points here because I expect it to be close. So I'm going to have to stay with Ole Miss as well. The Red Raiders of Texas Tech at Texas. Texas favored by nine and a half. Does that feel too large for you, James? Absolutely. I'm all over Texas Tech in this one. I don't love Texas Tech as a team, but I think emotionally Texas is in a bad place. There's already a lot of articles being written in their local press and media that Herman is not the guy they wanted. Although he's recruiting well, the bloom is off the rose. And it's it's an interesting time for them. I'm not sure where this team is at emotionally and how ready they will be to play in this, whereas Texas Tech has been what they've been all year. 
They'd love to get a win over Texas. I, I do think Texas might win this game, but I if they do, it'll be close. So that's that's too many points for me. So I'm gonna have to go to Tech. All right, the Apple Cup, a fun one. Washington State at Washington. Washington favored by six and a half. Washington State has had a crazy weird year. They've lost so many close games. They're really hard to beat. They could have had a much better year. Washington has had a very disappointing year. A lot of people expected a lot more out of them. Six and a half is an interesting line here on the road against Washington. I I am not sure what to think here, Alan. I'm going to go with Mike Leach in this one because they played a lot of close games, but I'm not sure that this game will be close. I kind of think either team that wins might win by maybe more than a touchdown. Yeah, this feels like it could swing either way, so it's a difficult one to handicap here. I, I was going to ask you the question, how disappointed should Washington's, Washington's fans feel? You know, they have a quarterback in Eason. It looked like they had enough pieces to, I don't know about win the Pac-12, but at least be a really strong contender. They have not been that. But I think they get the win here at home. I'll go and take the Huskies. Next, we have surging Virginia Tech. Favored by three at UVA. Back in the top 25, Virginia Tech, number 23. Oh, I'm all over Vautech. Ride that momentum, baby. I don't care what this line is. 10, I'm taking it. 21, I'm taking it. <laughs> but at three, I'm definitely yeah. taking it. I think Virginia's going to play you, well. I think they'll play this game close. But you can't come off Virginia Tech until they prove you should. I have to agree with you. I mean, Vautech, they, it took a while for me to get on their bandwagon, but I can't leave it right now. They are killing people. And I do think this will be a competitive game, but if you think if you like VTech to win, you might as well take take them at three there. Number eighteen Cincinnati at number seventeen Memphis. Memphis favored by a pretty big number here, eleven. Yeah, they're feeling they're feeling like Memphis's offense <coughs> can get this job done. This is a really weird setup, Alan, because depending on who wins this game, there'll be an immediate rematch next week, which feels real bad to me that that can happen in college football, but it's possible in big conferences too. It's possible here. Uh, I feel like Memphis is definitely the better team here. Cincinnati has maybe some athletes that can mess with Memphis. 11 seems just too big for me though. I'm going to go Cincinnati. Okay. I thought this is a game where we might differentiate ourselves here. I'm going to go Memphis here. Um, I do think this will be a fairly close game, but I like Memphis's firepower in this game. All right. My clones of Iowa State, number 19, favored by four at a very, very frisky Kansas State team. Yeah, Kansas State sort of faded on the stretch, and this might be Allen, Matt Campbell, attempting to make his play for one Florida State. He is the odds-on favorite right now to become the next coach of Florida State. Don't read too much into that, but it's fun to talk about. So because of that, I think there's extra motivation for him. I think they go on the road and cover that four-point spread. Yeah, I'm definitely taking them to cover here. Gosh, I would hate if FSU hired him just because I love the guy so much. I love the clones. Man, that would be a rough beat for me. Number number seven, Oklahoma, favored by 14 at Oklahoma State. Absurd. Easy. Oklahoma State all the way. Absolutely. I mean – I don't know what they would have had to make this number to make me take Oklahoma. I mean, but at 14, it's way too high. And they might win that game by 14, but I would never bet them to do it. Okay, number 11, Baylor, favored by 14 and a half at Kansas, who had another close loss last week. 
man, Les Miles, they're not winning a ton of games, but they're getting it done at Kansas. It's a much more competitive program. Yeah, phenomenal season, illustrating, again, the importance of coaching. And although Les Miles is what he is, he's an interesting dude. He doesn't necessarily know where he is or what team he's coaching or who his players are. He's obviously good at coaching football. This is an interesting line for me. Could be sort of a letdown game for Baylor before the big, big game is upcoming. However, I don't know. The way Baylor's been playing defense, Allen, leads me to believe they could cover this. 14 and a half is tricky. I'm going to go Baylor here, but I would not bet this one. Yeah, I'm going to weirdly go the Jayhawks here. I, I think they keep it underneath that number. Again, I wouldn't bet it, but that that's where I'm leaning right now. Okay, the Aggies. They're, I think they're on our picks list every week because they play an impossible schedule at number one LSU. LSU favored by 16 and a half. This one feels like it should be all LSU because Kellen Mond is an absolute seat built. That's not even the right analogy. He's like a break. He's like an emergency break that you leave on. That's what I want to say. You get into your car if you drive manual or if you drive automatic, you pull the emergency brake on and you feel like you're going half the speed. That's Kellen Mond, the Texas A&M's program. He is holding them back as long as he's there. I just don't feel like they have the ability to win this kind of game. 16 and a half, Allen, seems criminally low. If you recall, what was the spread between Florida and LSU? It was 14. Uh, 13 and a half or 14, so, yeah. yeah. so they're on the road there. They've had a tough season, but it shows you, again, I think that's a Jimbo Fesher respect card. He plays these top-level teams very, very well. A&M's defense has gotten better and better and better. But I just cannot see AM scoring enough points, even on a bad LSU defense, to keep this within 16 and a half. So I'm going to take LSU. Me too. I think LSU wakes up a little bit, puts the pedal to the metal. I think they've not had great results against bad teams the last couple weeks. So I think they have the, the coaching staff will have their attention enough in this game for them to play well. Although this game has been close in the past, it was close um, last year. So let's talk about a really tricky one here. Number 13, Wisconsin, favored by two and a half at number nine, Minnesota. I got to row the boat here. I row the battleship, whatever term they're changing. Row the boat. But I'm rowing it. Uh, I I don't believe in Wisconsin. I have not all year. I think that this is a a battle of two teams that are athletically limited and both kind of maximizing what they have, which is truly wonderful. That's the point of, of playing any sport or working in any profession is to maximize your own ceiling. I think they're both doing that. I love this for college football, and I love P.J. Fleck. Right now, I'm going to go Minnesota. Yeah, when I first saw this line, I was like, wait, did I have that backwards? I even right now want to go check it. Um, Minnesota feels like, you know, at home, they really want this game. Wisconsin has been like the measuring stick for that side of the conference for a while now. I feel like they keep their momentum rolling. Yeah, I'm Minnesota all the way here. Row the boat. Okay, number four, Georgia, favored by 28.5 at their rival, Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech is absolutely terrible this year. They cannot stop the run. Teams that can't stop the run can't stop Georgia. Georgia's defense continues to prove to me they are, in fact, elite. I'm going to take Georgia covering the spread, despite the fact that they have a hard time scoring points. This just feels like a boa constrictor game where they win it like 35-3 or 42-7 or something like that, which would all cover the spread. They are really interesting right right now because if you if you were just to look at the two teams at a vacuum, you'd be like, well, of course Georgia could cover this, but man, uh, does Georgia Tech have enough juice to stay in this game? 
man, I don't know. This feels so crazy. I'm going to go Georgia Tech. I Maybe that Georgia just doesn't have their foot on the gas at this point, and that maybe they can't. Can Georgia score 30 in this game? That's a question mark I have. So I guess I have to take Georgia Tech. Yeah, it's a good question mark, and I would definitely never bet that game. That's a big, big line in a weird situation. I'm with you there. Good thoughts, but we'll see what happens. Okay. And you know, I had a big week, James, last week. You, you sure you want to deviate from me on these? Yeah, I'm deviating from you a lot. I'm kind of scared, actually. I'm thinking that maybe you're going to win like 14 or 15 games this week, and I'm going to win one or two. I don't know. I think I was supposed to lead us through this. So, Or maybe we didn't flip this. Next week, we'll have to make sure that uh, I have to go first here. Um, all right, number tw- number three, Clemson, favored by 26 at South Carolina. The Gamecocks, can they do it, James? South Carolina's defense has been game for big games this season. 26 go. just goes to show you how good Vegas thinks Clemson is. And I know a lot of people out there keep sleeping on Clemson. They're still my number one team. I still think that they have the highest ceiling. I don't care that they've played no one. They've got the majority of their roster back from a national championship year in the previous year. They're a juggernaut until proven otherwise. Will Muschamp is anything but a juggernaut. I'm taking Clemson to cover the 26 point spread. Yeah, me too. I mean, South Carolina feels like they're imploding a little bit. I mean, Clemson is definitely going to score 35. Can South Carolina score 10? I don't know. There you go. There's the math right there. All right, number five, Alabama, favored by three and a half against number 16, Auburn. This is the year, Alan, that Auburn beats Alabama. Bo Nix is not good. Auburn's defense, I mean, off, sorry, Auburn's offense is not as talented as the players on the other side of the ball in Alabama's defense, but there are too many freshmen playing on that defense. They're giving up too many big plays against too many teams. Auburn is at home. They've had a weird year. They've been feisty against other teams. I think if you ever wanted a year to pick Auburn to where they actually felt like they should win, it's this one, which maybe means they won't win, but I'm taking Auburn here. Yeah, I'm taking Auburn too. Just feels like Alabama's too limited with Mac Jones. Uh, this would have been an interesting game even with Tua because Auburn is so weird. And because Auburn is so weird, they could let this game slip. I, I could totally see that happening. But I have to take them, especially getting points here. Okay. Before we pick this game, number two, Ohio State, favored by eight and a half against Michigan. Only eight and a half. Three weeks ago, what do you think this number would have been? It would have been well. It's a, this is a good, good question. It probably would have been three touchdowns. I mean, maybe eighteen to twenty-one, somewhere in that range, two and a half to three touchdowns, as it should have been. But then Michigan has has become Michigan finally. Okay, so what do you want here? I want Michigan. I think that this is everything I said last week. I have I have no reason to believe yet that a guy I like a lot as a person in Justin Fields is able to complete passes in tight games and tight windows consistently. It doesn't mean he can't do it, by the way. The guy's got a tremendously high ceiling. But until I've seen him do it, to go on the road in the biggest rivalry game uh, in your conference for your team, for your state versus their state, and to have to do it maybe repeatedly, Allen, and that's what I'm hanging on this game. I think Michigan's defense should be able to make Ohio State repeatedly have to face third down and throwing downs where they're not just going to let Justin Fields run for it. Now, if that does not happen, forget about it. All bets are off. Ohio State will win this game easily. 
But I think Michigan has the horses to slow the run game down enough that they will have to pass more on high leverage downs. I also think Michigan's offense will struggle, although they played a lot better against Ohio State's defense. That is an excellent, excellent defense. But regardless, I'm really looking forward to seeing this game. I would also not bet on this game. There's a million different variables that go into this. Both teams are hard to get a read on, even as good as Ohio State's played. But for now, I'm going to ride Harbaugh's momentum. I think it would be a tremendous way for him to beat Ohio State for the first time if he's able to do it. Uh, But either way, I'm going to take Michigan. This is the chaos game. If if Michigan does win, creates a lot of interesting playoff scenarios. You know, Ohio State, I you know, early in the season this was going to be a blowout. I'm glad that I'm actually looking forward to this game that it's going to be fun hopefully. We're going to actually get to watch it because our game is at night. Michigan does feel like they're sneaking up on Ohio State here, even if that's possible. So, man, it just feels like this is going to be a close game. And eight and a half is a small enough number that I'm tempted to take the Buckeyes, but I'm going to have to go Wolverines as well. Look at that, a slide to the Harbaugh side. Well, it should be a great slate. As you just heard, we read off a bunch of these games. There are obviously more of them. Most of the wars uh, between the interstate schools or schools intrastate occur this weekend. Lots of good stuff to watch. I'm so happy that we got a 7.30 p.m. game. I was texting back and forth with Scott Strickland about that, and uh, he joked about making some trades to make that happen, You know, putting the chips in the right places. But regardless of how it happened, uh, I think everyone's really excited to play Florida State at night in the swamp, which doesn't happen enough, in my opinion, Alan. It's definitely way more exciting than a noon game, which I was deathly afraid we were going to get. That's fun. It's fun for Gainesville, but it's even more fun because, as you mentioned, we get to watch almost all of these other games, especially the Ohio State-Michigan game. So I am stoked about that. Under other items, as we always have before we close, let's talk just a little bit more of Gator basketball. So the Gators went on the road to Charleston and won a basketball tournament over the weekend. They beat Miami. Uh, They beat Xavier, who was ranked, so we get a quality win. On Sunday, we blew a 17-point lead, hung on to narrowly win towards the end. Alan, I know you didn't get to watch any of these games. Maybe you watched last night, uh, but it seemed like for a moment there in the hotel room, we had discovered offense, and we had Justin Seitz's comment that we'd be better if we ran pickup offense, and then all of a sudden, the team is actually running better offense. It looks like we're running sets, and then the same old thing happens to Mike White, where about eight minutes to go in the game... We decide to kind of take a knee, stop running offense, no longer have movement, no longer have on-ball or off-ball screens, start taking a bunch of shots with two or three seconds left before the shot clock goes off. So this hope that was building for me, I was dreaming of coming on this podcast saying, hey, great news, Gator basketball fans. Mike White seems to have remedied an Achilles heel here. We seem to be running sets. We're doing things we have not done in five years. That still remains to be true, but also... It still remains that there are some tremendous, I think, coaching growing pains on how to finish a game that doesn't involve sitting on the ball and praying a team does not run you down. Well, I don't want to be overly pedantic here, but we shot a lot better this weekend. You know, I didn't watch any of the games, but just looking at the stats would tell me that we played better. Nimhard played better. Locke played better. Uh, I think qualitatively, at least from the tone of Twitter, that we looked better once I got to download all of Twitter, it seemed like today. 
I don't want to be like, yeah, we fixed it. That that feels premature at best. But I think the team, if you grow in confidence, if you're feeling better about your personal game, about the team's collective game, this is a team I think can still win a lot of games. Unfortunately, you know, took a punch early on, but it's good to see they responded and are playing well, you know, in that type of environment where, you know, those games against Miami and Xavier do matter. So those are those are good wins. Yeah, see, the ceiling is the roof, as Michael Jordan once said, for this team. Uh, and the roof could be really high, in all fairness, actually, for this team. I think that the concern that, of course, that we have and we've highlighted is is if the coaching staff can't get them there, can't run the right sets, then we won't get there. Step in the right direction this past weekend, even if we had kind of an old an old friend rear his head there towards the end of that game. Not enough to make a judgment that, hey, we're out of the woods. Everything is great now. Problem solved. Coaches are perfect but definitely a step in the proper direction when it came to running organized offense. Hopefully, we'll take the lessons we learned from Sunday and start to actually close out games. I'll put a marker out there for you if you want a key to the season, Alan. Against these better teams, and Friday night we play Marshall, who's a good basketball team. If we get up 10 or 12, and in the last eight minutes we're able to keep playing good basketball and keep getting good shots to finish the game out, that will be a major turning point. If you begin to see that happen against quality competition, I think you can begin to proclaim that Mike White and the staff have turned a corner, leaving behind some of the issues that have been going on for the past couple of years and for most of his five-year tenure. So keep an eye on that one. All right, Alan, any other items? I just want to say, if we're going to move into an era where we own FSU, that's going to be such a great era for me personally, but for Gator football in general. Hopefully the basketball team can reclaim some of that ground, but it's nice to feel like we have the momentum going to this game rather than we're just praying that we can pull something out. So good place to be for Gator Nation. Yeah, definitely. And that's my other items too, as well. Uh, It's Thanksgiving week. I know you are as well as I am, Alan. We're super thankful for all of you that listen to this podcast, whether you've ever written us anything or have not. Uh, we love all of you. We appreciate all of you. We truly do do this show for all of you. Again, if all of you disappeared and no one listened, we wouldn't do it. As much fun as we get talking about it, we get way more joy and satisfaction knowing it brings something into your football viewing experience. As always, if you have any feedback, feel free to send it to us. Our goal is to get better and to be better and to cover topics that are of interest to you and to not cover ones that are not of interest to you. You can view this show as sort of your show. It's your podcast. We want to dive into the things that you want to know the answers to. And I kind of myth bust the things that are out there and try to be a voice of, of, of reason based upon data uh, behind just, you know, Alan and I's own opinion. So we're thankful for all of you. Alan, of course, I'm very thankful for you bringing this idea together. This podcast wouldn't have happened without Alan having the idea for it and doing it from Moscow and Jacksonville and all the other places that we've done it before together. Super thankful for that. And then lastly, I think both of us, Alan, we're thankful for where Florida football is today. A lot of times I think it's hard to understand because we are so analytical where we might be with this staff. But rest assured, we are very thankful and very appreciative of where Florida is today. We look forward to a tomorrow where we can win some of these more competitive games. But don't think for a second that we're down on where we are right now. This is a vast and tremendous turnaround from where we were. But we're also thankful, Alan, that Florida is not a Wisconsin or a Minnesota. At Florida we have the ability to win championships. And that's something I think as a football fan that is just more fun for me. I've often wondered what would it be like if I was a UCF fan or if I was a Minnesota fan. 
your season is different. You're really just watching it for entertainment with no real hope of winning. We're in a blessed situation here. And uh, again, thanks to all of you for making this show what it is. We look forward to broadcasting back with you next Monday. We'll break down the Florida State game, look ahead to all the conference championship games, and then we will continue on throughout the offseason uh, with our schedule, which we will discuss with you as we get into that. For Alan Williams, I'm your co-host, James T. Virgilio. Go Gators. Beat the criminals.